what kind of a society could exist without good, decent citizens, right? Not everybody can change the world, but we can all be a good person every day. So I think as a society, we place way too much value on both monetary and status value on changing the world. Welcome to Stoic Conversations. In this podcast, Michael Tremblay and I discuss the theory and practice of Stoicism. Each week, we'll share two conversations, one between the two of us, and another will be an in-depth conversation with an expert. In this conversation, I speak with Brittany Polat. Brittany is a repeat guest. She's done excellent work teaching and promoting the ideas of Stoicism through her books, blogs, and organization, Stoic Care. So we're always happy to have her on. And in this episode, Brittany and I talk about what we can learn from monasteries, how Stoics should think about accountability, what Epictetus said about the philosophy of cynicism, and the importance of beauty. Here is our conversation. Welcome to Stoic Conversations. Today I am speaking with Brittany Polat. Brittany is the author of Journal Like a Stoic, co-founder of Stoic Care, and writes at Stoicism for Humans. Thanks for coming back. Thank you for having me on, Caleb. It's always a pleasure. Let's start with this broad question. What's your story? Oh, my story as a human and as a Stoic, I guess, would kind of come together because about six or maybe seven years ago now, I found myself in kind of a crisis, a crossroads in my life. I had pursued kind of a, a career up to that point, and it just wasn't meshing well with my family. I was at home with three young kids. I didn't really know what to do. I had lost my sense of direction. I knew I needed some kind of system of guidance, both for myself and to make sure I was educating my children in the right way and providing them with a good direction in life. And so I started reading widely about, you know, different types of wisdom traditions, different life philosophies, this kind of thing. And nothing really spoke to me until I read William Irvin's A Guide to the Good Life. And all of a sudden, everything made sense. And I thought, wow, you know, why, why didn't I know about this before? This is amazing, this stoicism thing. So I kept on reading. I read Seneca. I read Pierre Hadot. I read Donald Robertson's book and just kept going and found that stoicism in the intervening six or seven years has really put me on a good path and has helped me to be a better parent too and help my children develop into the direction that I want them and hope for them to, to go. So okay. since then, I've tried to share stoicism as widely as possible. Excellent. And something you've written about is stoicism as a system of ethical development. You know, there, there are these ideas that the Stoics had about how humans develop over time. And I wonder if you could say more about that and how that shapes how you see Stoicism. That's right. That's one thing that I absolutely love about Stoicism is that it's seen as a lifetime process, a lifelong ongoing developmental process. So you have some philosophies such as Aristotelian virtue ethics, which really emphasize the formative years. So it, it posits that the education you receive as a child, the environment you grow up in, is really crucial for setting you on the path to your ethics as an adult. 
And of course, I would never argue with the idea that our ethics, the ethics that we receive in childhood and the environment we grow up in are certainly very influential. But what Stoicism does differently is it says, well, no matter what you had in your past, no matter what happened to you, no matter what you did, no matter how you grew up, no matter what culture or environment you were raised in, as an adult, you have agency. You have the ability to steer your life in a different direction if you choose. And Stoicism provides the tools for us to do this. You know, we're all, as mature humans, as adults, we're able to kind of step back and assess our lives and say, wait a minute, is this going the way I want it to? Am I happy? Am I fulfilled? And of course, there are all different kinds of ways of feeling happy. But what Stoicism thinks that we will do is that as humans, we'll say, you know what, this short-term happiness that I get just from being on the hedonic treadmill, you know, earning more money, buying more stuff, having short-term pleasures, this isn't really meaningful. This is not fulfillment at the deepest level that I want for my life. So how do I get that? And so then the next step is to look around and figure out how we can reach that by, you know, doing research, maybe looking to role models and figuring out a better path for ourselves. So what I love right. about Stoicism is this ongoing idea of development and agency, and it's very empowering so that no matter what we've done in our past, we can have a better and more fulfilling future. Yeah, that's right. The Stoics offer a model for humans to transform themselves over time through childhood to the end of life, wherever that may be. And there's this idea that there's a fundamental divide between what is up to you and what is not. And there's an immense amount of power or agency, I suppose, in the idea that you have control, or at least your thoughts and judgments are fundamentally up to you. And because of that, you can steer the ship of your life, as it were. Right. I think this is why Stoicism is a lot more popular than many other philosophies, because it does put us in the driver's seat of our own lives, right? Whereas a lot of other philosophies, you know, might emphasize the, the environment or the things that happen to us or how we're not actually in charge of our lives. And this is very, you know, constraining and limiting. And it makes you feel like, well, you know, there's no point in really doing anything if, if my, you know, my basic impulses are guiding me and my conscious rational mind can't do anything. So I think stoicism for a lot of people is really kind of the answer we were looking for of creating that agency. And I really like the term agency, maybe in addition to control or maybe more than control, because you know control can be misconstrued that we're able to control every thought that we have, for example. So the dichotomy of control says there are some things that we can influence in our lives. There are some things that we actually have our control over, and it's our internal thoughts and our character. And I think this can be a little bit confusing in some ways, as if we control every single thing that happens in our head. And I don't think that's actually the case. I think that, you know, thoughts can arise spontaneously, but what's up to us is what we do with those thoughts, whether we assent to those impressions or not. So I like yeah. the idea of, of agency and being able to, you know, kind of respond in our own way. So... Control, again, it can be a little bit of a tricky word, but as long as we think in terms of agency, maybe in addition to control, I think that's very helpful. Yeah, that's right. Another 
point here is that the Stoics don't think you can, in an instant, at least most of us cannot, in an instant, completely change who we are because our character is made up of all of these past decisions, past experiences, and judgments Mm -hmm. we've made. And those are going to shape the very impressions we're faced with. So changing one's character is going to be much more of an incremental matter than a matter of completely jumping onto a new track. Although one can have experiences like that from time to time, in general, it's going to be a slow and steady matter. Exactly. Seneca says that this virtue is cannot be expected in a child or even a youth, not even a young person, and that at old age, you're doing well if after much study and a lifetime of experience, you have reached a somewhat virtuous state. So yes, the ancient Stoics were certainly realistic in their assessment of what we can do and how long it might take us to reach this point. But I still find great beauty in the aspiration in having a compass and having a direction. So I think even though we're not going to become virtuous overnight, it's still wonderful to have a goal to strive for. Absolutely. So how do you think about this idea of fate or the determinism? So I'm, I'm more interested not in so much the academic answers, like what the ancient Stoics thought about this matter, but since you think about teaching Stoicism to people who may not have as much of a background in it. Is that an idea that you discuss or how do you think about that personally? Yeah, well, obviously that's a very tricky issue and it's not my area of expertise. Just as a person, I think about this in terms of how we build our character. So for example, someone who came from perhaps a background where they were not raised in an ethical situation or they experienced a certain level of trauma or all the people around them are acting selfishly, for example, and they were not, they didn't have good role models, these kinds of things, that's certainly going to influence who they become as an adult. It's going to have an adverse influence on their character, on their chances of finding the right path. And so I think about this a lot in terms of, you know, how, how far do we hold them accountable for their own actions if, they, if that's all they've experienced in the world, right? So I think this kind of gets to your point about determinism, how much responsibility, maybe how much moral accountability do we have for our own actions? And, you know, the Stoics said that there is a causal chain of things that goes all the way back to the beginning of time. You know, we might say today, back to the Big Bang Theory, everything was kind of linked and everything has an antecedent cause and then something that happened after, after it. So it's all connected. So I think, I mean, I find that the Stoic position on character makes a lot of sense. So going back to the the cylinder analogy that Chrysippus used, so he compared our character to a cylinder. If you push a cylinder, it rolls, right? Because it is shaped a certain way, it's going to roll. The, The push is what actually causes it to roll, but because it's shaped a certain way, it rolls. If you pushed a cube, for example, it would not roll. So the push is the actual cause of the movement, but also the shape of, you know, we're using this analogy for character, the shape of your character is what causes you to actually do something. So this makes a lot of sense to me in that as human, you know, just the type of creature we are, we do have a rationality and an agency. And of course, here I'm referring to a normally functioning human. There are some types of disabilities or incapacities 
that would not permit someone to to have full human rationality. And obviously that's a different case. But for a normally functioning human, we have the capacity to reflect on things and to actually take agency in our own lives. So even if the deck is stacked against us, so to speak, even if we did not receive moral advantages or we don't have moral luck, to use a phrase that ethicists sometimes use, you know, it's still, there is still an element of accountability for ourselves that we have to, to try at least, or to recognize that a change is in order. At the same time though, the Stoics were very careful not to have harsh judgments against people, not to blame people. A crucial element of the philosophy, especially when we start talking about accountability, is that we don't blame people for a lack of progress, for example, because we don't know how hard they're trying. We don't know what their intentions are. We don't know what their backgrounds are. People are definitely starting from different places. So mm-hmm. at the same time that we want to try to improve our own lives, at the same time that we want to help others to find meaning and happiness, we do not want to blame people if they have not reached a certain level. So it's more about a desire to help rather than a desire to blame because no one is perfect. None of us have reached that perfect you know, pinnacle of virtue. We're just at different places along the road. Some of us may have done it a little bit longer. We may have found a better way to get there, a shortcut. We may be taking a better route, but we're all on that same road. And so you know, if somebody isn't as far along as we might expect them to be or we might want them to be, we have to be patient. We need to show compassion and just try to find a better way to kind of bring them along. So even though there is accountability, there is also great compassion. I think that's a great point. The Stoics are very careful about not judging others, not distracting ourselves with thinking about how good others may be or not, and keeping the focus on whether we are on the right path towards being a sage and that will involve holding people accountable. But what that looks like could depend on the circumstance, but it certainly doesn't involve a preoccupation with blaming others or ranking others against, against our own progress. Right. I think you can hold people accountable for reaching a standard without blaming them for not reaching it, if that makes any sense. So it's, I think, you know, we do need standards and we do need to recognize that some lifestyles are more conducive to flourishing than others. But as I see it, it's more about lifting people up to the standard rather than blaming them for not reaching it. So it's a quite different attitude. It's a very different approach. Yeah, I think that's right. There's a fun, an amusing story about Zeno and one of his servants and Zeno's servant steals, I believe, one of Zeno's shoes or something of this sort. And Zeno reprimands him and his servant says, look, I was fated to do this. Why don't be, don't punish me. And then Zeno says, no, I was fated to punish people who steal my shoes or something of that sort. Oh, that sounds like something my kids would say. (laughs) That's funny. Which apart from being amusing, that story at least opens the possibility that there is a distinct difference between holding someone accountable doing what's required to fulfill our social roles, keep a community together as well, not 
purely blaming them or seeking to punish merely for the sake of punishment or something of that sort. Right. I think accountability can actually be a way of shaping character or shaping behaviors. You know, if people know that they are going to be responsible to other people for a certain action, that really encourages them to fulfill their role, for example. So if my kids know that they have a part in our family, they have to take the trash out, for example, or we face a mound of smelly trash for the next week, you know, that encourages them to fulfill their responsibility. So I think accountability is actually really important whenever you're living with people, more than one person, you know, you're accountable to each other. So so I think just by the nature of how humans are, kind of our, our psychology, we're made in that direction. Yeah, that seems right to me. So what can Stoics learn from medieval monks? Oh, yeah. So I recently read a book called How to Live Like a Medieval Monk. And it's very appealing to me, partly because it has beautiful illustrations and photographs of illuminated manuscripts and things like that, which I love. I'm fascinated by the medieval period. But I also love the idea of living in a community together, a community of virtue, which is, you know, that's an appealing idea for a Stoic. And that's essentially what the monks were trying to do. Of course, they had a very different religious viewpoint, but they came together as a community and they tried to find ways to live in harmony together, which of course is something that a Stoic would do in a community of the wise. I recently had an opportunity to see the monastery of San Marco in Florence, Italy. And there are beautiful frescoes there by Fra Angelico. But when you go there, there's such a feeling of peace and serenity in the whole place. You know, they have, it's built around a central courtyard, or in this case, multiple courtyards. And in, in the center, there is a kitchen garden, or at least there used to be. And I could just picture, you know, everyone out there working their kitchen garden, harvesting their herbs for their medicines, getting the food for them to cook together. And I like the idea, of course, in a monastery, there was a hierarchy. But in Stoicism, we would say there isn't really a hierarchy of, you know, there are no levels of virtue. There's just virtue and non-virtue. So I love the idea of an egalitarian approach to living together and figuring mm -hmm. out, you know, when you have wise people living together, according to kind of what we think Zeno might have written in the Republic, which is no longer extant, you know, people hold things in common. There isn't all the squabbling over mine and yours. Everyone is trying to benefit everybody else. So I love the idea. We no longer have a lot of what remains from the ancient Stoa. And so I love the idea of seeing how this might have been applied in a different context that is closer to us in time. We do have more physical remains of medieval monasticism. So I think we can actually learn a lot about living together in a community of the wise or striving to do so from what remains of that tradition. Right, right. What do you think is the closest modern analogy to that today? Oh, uh, well, I, I don't know, you know, every community out there, but I would be really interested in visiting Plum Village established by Thich Nhat Hanh and seeing how that functions. That might be kind of an analog. Um, obviously, Buddhism has some close parallels to Stoicism. So a functioning 
Buddhist monastery, but in a Western context, since that one is established in France, I think that would be interesting. You know, mm -hmm. there are Buddhist monasteries in the United States, different places in the world. And of course, there are Christian monasteries as well. So it could be interesting to to think about how in a contemporary context that people might still be trying to do that today. Right, right. Yeah, there's a book by Zena Hitz called A Philosopher Looks at the Religious Life. She also wrote a book called Lost in Thought. And there's an earlier Stoic conversation about that book. It's, it's about the merits of intellectual pursuit for its own sake. But A Philosopher Looks at the Religious Life is her story about going to serve in, in a religious community and living with other sisters who are solely focused on serving the nearby community and becoming closer to God. I thought that was a very well done and challenging book about the religious life in the modern world. I love that. I've written that down to read later. So thank you for that recommendation. Yeah, hopefully I'll, hopefully we'll have a conversation about Zeno with that as well. But what about in terms of the medieval monks and their practices around concentration or meditation? Does that anything stick out to you there? So there's an excellent book by the historian Jamie Kreiner called The Wandering Mind, and she looks in detail about the specific psychological practices that took place in late antiquity and early medieval period. So we're talking about from around 300 AD, maybe until about 900 AD. So the end of the Roman Empire, and then what, hap what happened after that, what came next. And of course, it's already been established by historians such as Pierre Hadot that a lot of the practices from Greek philosophy found their way into early Christianity, especially monastic practice, not exclusively monastic practice, just into Christianity in general, but they were concentrated in monasteries because of the intensity that a lot of them required. Obviously, philosophy is very demanding. We know Stoicism is very mentally, psychologically demanding. And so a lot of those practices were naturally carried over by the people who were most committed to the intellectual spiritual life, which in this time period ended up being in monasteries. Or I should also add, not exclusively monasteries, but the Desert Fathers. So mm -hmm. these were very highly spiritual and a lot of times intellectual people who lived out in the wilderness. They found their calling not by living together, but by living in the middle of nowhere. This was both men and women, desert fathers and mothers, I should hasten to add. And they ended up kind of actually forming a community of their own, kind of the, these in this wilderness area. And they were not completely isolated. They received visitors. They received letters from people. So they were still kind of in interaction with community in some cases, but they carried the tradition on you know, the collapse of the Roman Empire, basically the collapse of philosophy. And at the end of the Roman Empire anyway, Stoicism was eclipsed by Neoplatonism, which then was eclipsed by Christianity. So you had all of these really interesting intellectual currents that had been around for at least 500 years prior to that. And then they were melded together 
into early Christianity. So super interesting time period. Jamie Kreiner does a great job in her book explaining this. Pierre Hado also has an excellent essay on these spiritual practices. So a lot of things that kind of made their way from Stoicism into monastic practice would be concentration, you know, the idea that we don't want to be distracted by worldly things, which takes a different tone in Christianity than it did in Greek philosophy. But it's this idea that we need to concentrate on the good and shut out or ignore all of the other things that could distract us from the most important things in life. And so you have practices like meditation, prayer, writing, you know, either copying things down or writing how your day went, things like this. There were some practices that I believe were specific to this period, such as biblical quotations. You would have monks who were very well-versed in the Bible and kind of just freestyling these different biblical quotations on a certain theme together, either in a written form or just in a meditative form. So this tradition, very interestingly, was carried on from late antiquity through the early medieval period. And from there, of course, you know, the current persisted through the monastic tradition into our early modern period. So very interesting, highly recommend it. Yeah. And there's, I think, some instructive tips, if you will, or practical insights on how to do some of these spiritual practices that one can get from people who have spent years and years solely focusing in a way that someone engaged in religious practice or deep meditative practice has done. Right. Did, did you have any favorites you wanted to talk about? Well, the focus on memorizing aspects of the Bible has some interesting analogies with the Stoics. Of course, Stoics would tend to memorize maxims or at least keep them on hand in a handbook. Today, we see people do that either by writing sticky notes, keeping a notebook on hand or reminders in their phone. But the ability to memorize these, I think, is underrated just because for perhaps some reasons, you know, our educational institutions overrated memorization, but now they're, my general sense is we're making the opposite mistake today where there is a real benefit to being able to memorize a poem, a text and have it on hand internally without needing some external hint as it were, and sort of embody it in a way by reciting it. So this would be another point is that often in religious practices, there is some recital either to, through chanting or other means to ingrain these sorts of messages in an aesthetic way. Experiencing these through maxims, through reading, or a poem through reading is quite different from hearing it being read aloud or reading it aloud oneself. So that's something that I suppose stuck out to me. There's this thought about in general memorization is important and it's something that comes with being able to spend so much time focused on these practices. And then also 
reciting what you've memorized or at least interacting with it in different ways gives you a new way to see what some of these lessons might be. And of course you have in the ancient Stoics, there were ancient hymns that people would have in addition to the poetry and the focus on rhetoric, saying things in a particular way that would sound good when spoken aloud. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there is a lot to be said for, you said, experiencing these ideas in different modalities. And I think there's really something behind that. You know, I've tried before to incorporate stoic principles into my yoga practice. For example, you know, if I'm doing tree pose, I might call to mind Seneca's quote about a tree being stronger when it's buffeted by strong winds and kind of connect the physical movement to the philosophical principle. Because I think, you know, we are embodied creatures. I don't think we should ignore that. I don't think it's anti-rational or even irrational to use what we know about our, you know, our physical embodied sense in order to make ourselves, you know, more philosophically productive or philosophically aware of things. So I love the idea of having music, of having physical movement, like the chants, like you were just saying, the hymns, even the physical act of writing. I often will just sit down and copy out by hand some of my favorite quotes. You know, writing it down on a piece of paper mm-hmm. is quite different from typing on the computer because your hand is making the motions and it's a slower process, much more physical process. So it kind of ingrains it more on your mind. So I think you're absolutely right about that. I would also kind of connect that to a strand of thought I've, I've been thinking about, I know some other people in the Stoic community have as well, which is the idea of beauty, linking Stoicism to ideals of beauty. And, you know, it's, it's a little bit complicated because beauty of external things is a preferred and different in Stoicism. So for example, seeing a beautiful sunset, you know, if you were imprisoned, you would not be able to necessarily see a beautiful sunset. And so that sunset is external to you. It's not your true good. So it's important to recognize that. But at the same time, you know, there are lots of preferred indifference that we do have access to. And if we can harness the power of our human response to a beautiful sunset, for example, or to moral beauty, the feeling of moral elevation that comes when we see other people performing good acts, inspiring acts. You know, I think it makes sense for us to harness all of these to to inspire us and to become more virtuous. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think the point about beauty is an interesting one. I think you, so another book you recently reviewed is Chris Gill's Learning to Live Naturally. And one point he made explicit in his book is that Stoics did not think virtue was the only good, only that it was like the ultimate good for contributing to human happiness. But there are other goods in the Stoic view. The most obvious one would be that God is good and God for the Stoics was nature. So there is an angle on experiencing the sunset where you see what's beautiful there is the order inherent in nature as well as the providence, this not mere ordering, but perhaps you could call it providence or some other deeper telos or purpose that might be expressed by something like sunset. The fact that we live in a universe that 
provides a suitable home. And that's not the sort of good that's necessary for our happiness, but it can nonetheless be recognized as something that is deeply good. Yeah, I think it's absolutely appropriate for us to experience the beauty of the natural world. If we didn't experience that, you know, it would significantly diminish our lives, the quality of our lives. That's, we are part of nature. That's where we come from. That's where we're going back to. So it would be an impoverished life if we didn't recognize the beauty all around us. And I love the quote from Marcus Aurelius where he says, if you're advanced enough in in understanding the world, then you can find beauty in anything, even the cracks of bread baking. Or he uses the example of the foam around the mouth of a wild boar, you know, which is something that we might feel repulsed by. But he said, because it's part of nature, it's part of this big, beautiful, amazing world that we live in, we can find beauty in those things. You know, even microscopic organisms have their own beauty. And so I love, you know, we all have to figure out how we're going to live. One thing we all do is we experience our homes, our environment. So I love having books and pictures around me that show the beauty of nature. It's very, that in itself can be a reminder to appreciate the world and to strive for virtue, you know? So I think all of this can help us to elevate, can elevate the quality of our lives and also help keep our minds in the right direction. We don't have to live in you know, a, a monastic cell in order to strive for virtue. We can use what's available to us to enhance our lives in that way. Right, right. Yeah, that touches on another story that you've written about from Epictetus, where Epictetus is discussing the cynic. And Epictetus holds cynics in high regard. Cynics were f- philosophers. Its name's a school of philosophy. We're not talking about cynic in the colloquial sense but philosophers usually who stood apart from society and believed that virtue was the only good and rejected the doctrine, or at least did not include the doctrine the Stoics had about indifference. There being some things that are preferable even if they are indifferent, not relevant for virtue. And what Epictetus stated is that the cynic's role may be a good one for some people but not for all, which connects to this idea about the monastic role, different kinds of monastic lives, or perhaps even different roles where people are devoted to business, politics, art. Those may be good lives for some people, but they're, the typical person has a smorgasbord of ordinary roles where they're not devoted to any particular one, but a handful. And the Stoic life is very ordinary, but ordinary in an excellent, excellent way. Right. I think there's a lot of pressure on many people today to, you know, kind of give up everything. I personally, I strive to be as minimalist as possible, but I don't think that you have to give up everything in order to live a sustainable life, for example, or live a virtuous life. So to me, it's all about balance. It's about figuring out what is required of us, given our particular place in the world, our particular circumstances, our character, you know, our our past experiences, our gifts, what we can offer for the world. It's all part of figuring out, using wisely what we have. So yes, 
for someone like me who has three young kids, I'm never going to be a cynic. You know, there's a certain amount of stuff I have to have, but that doesn't mean that I can't strive for virtue in the way that I am. I may not be able to reach the level of Diogenes the cynic or Epictetus or some other people who are able to live with very little and therefore are able to devote themselves more to activities for the common good than I am myself. But in in our own way, we can each make a contribution. So, you know, I a few years ago I read a book called Some Do Care, which I highly recommend. It's an old psychology book. It's by two excellent psychologists, Colby and Damon. I think it was published in 1992, so it's pretty old by now. But it's a classic because they actually interviewed moral exemplars. They said, okay, we're going to do an empirical study on people who other people look up to. So instead of just doing a psychology study with university undergraduates or something like that, they said, we're going to go to the people who are actually doing what everybody wants to do. And I believe they interviewed about 27 of them, if I remember correctly, and they analyzed the interviews. And it was it's an incredible book because these are people, for example, Susie Valadez, she raised her children in poverty so that she could cross the border from America into Mexico every day and give shoes, clothes, food to children who were even more poor than her own children. So it's a very complicated decision, you know, what do, what do I owe to the rest of the world versus what do I owe to my family? What are my obligations here? And I don't think there is a clear-cut answer. I don't think there is a one-size-fits-all solution. I think different people can make different decisions and they are valid in different ways for different people. But it does raise a lot of interesting questions about, you know, how much do I give my time to other people versus to my own family? What is the proper balance to strike? And again, there's no one right answer. I think stoicism can help us make sense of this from our own in our own situation, but it does require judgment. It requires practical wisdom. And so turning to role models, turning to the philosophical principles can really help us apply that to our own lives. Right. Yeah, Michael and I have an episode on role ethics that we just recorded. And I th- role ethics can give us some direction in making these decisions. But as you say, at the same time, many of these decisions are just going to be so context specific and going to need to depend on personal factors that are only present in the individual's life making the decision. So there's a, always a judgment call that needs to be made about these, these kinds of things, even if there are some general rules, general maxims. Right. Yeah. One other interesting idea on this theme is, as you say, there's a lot of pressure to be devoted or obsessed about a particular thing, at least in some cultural spheres. So I'm in Silicon Valley now, and that would look like being devoted to a startup success, business success, and a prior life in the academy. It's being fully devoted to intellectual success and living in some respects an unbalanced life, one might say. And there's certainly something, not just an external pressure, but often internal pressure just because those lives can be good ones. The, pe- the person who devotes themselves to fully to some intellectual problem 
and make significant progress on it, which results in benefiting scores and scores of people. I think that's a that's an admirable kind of life. But I think one thing that the Stoics note is that when you're thinking about your roles, you need to think about things like what are my talents, what are my innate dispositions, my limitations, and also what are some of my relationships that I have chosen or have naturally. And those sorts of things may mean that even though there are lives that we put up on a pedestal, perhaps sometimes even correctly for being exemplary ones, they are not the ones that are going to be right for you and your life might look much more like an ordinary kind of excellence instead of a, a heroic one. That's right. I think there's only so much room in any society for someone to you know, invent the next great vaccine, for example. There's only a few people who can do that or to, you know, win the Nobel Peace Prize in a certain area. So I think for most of us, you know, there's a lot of emphasis these days on changing the world, on, you know, being that world shaking person, you know, disruptor, but not everybody can do that. And it's not even good for that to happen too frequently. If there's too much disruption, you know, nobody can... (laughs) live a peaceful life, a harmonious life. So I think we need to start valuing more those of us who just live decent lives every day. You know, there is tremendous value in that. What kind of a society could exist without good, decent citizens, right? Not everybody can change the world, but we can all be a good person every day. So I think as a society, we place way too much value on but both monetary and status value on changing the world, whereas we should spend a lot more time appreciating the everyday. Yeah, I think there's something to that. I think especially when you think about this idea of changing the world, what does that even mean? It sort of becomes like the idea or desire to be rich, where I think if you think about that in the business context, there are some counterexamples, but at least when you are trying to build a business on the people who end up becoming rich have some prior interest and something that's much more detailed rather than some vague desire like I want to be rich and I think the desire to change the world is similar in the sense that many people who are effective at doing that sort of thing find themselves with much more specific desires and goals and may end up for better or worse changing the world almost as a side effects of what they had what they had chosen that's a good point. Yeah, yeah, this is an interesting t- topic for sure. There's, I think there's a lot of depth here. But one of the things I wanted to ask you about is we touched a little bit on this, but you recently covered Chris Gill's new book, Learning to Live Naturally. What sort of ideas stuck out from that work that you think are underrated by many modern Stoics? So he does cover environmental ethics, which not everybody is aware of. And I think that that's very useful for where we are in this time period in the 21st century. He also covers the idea that kind of like we we just talked about that you don't have to give up your family in order to be an ethical person 
and live a cosmopolitan life. So going back to the circles of Hierocles, which I believe your listeners will be familiar with, but this is the idea that Stoic cosmopolitanism means that we welcome, we embrace people from all over the world. Hierocles provided a psychological model for us to do this, where we start by thinking about you know, ourselves and our close family members and how we are connected to them. And then we might branch out to the people a little farther away, our friends, our neighbors, and think about how we can bring them closer to us and feel connected to them, and then expand a little bit more to our fellow citizens or the people that we, you know, we share some kind of community with, and then branch out to the entire world. So this is a psychological model for us to realize the Stoic aspiration to not have you know, borders and limits between people, but to recognize we're all part of the brotherhood of humankind, sisterhood of humankind, and, you know, not, not put false borders between people. So this yeah. is a wonderful model. It's, it's incredibly useful for, for me personally, and I know for a lot of other Stoics, but there is sometimes a tendency to say, well, I need to, you know, think about loving the person on the other side of the world when I'm not really loving the person who's emptying the dishwasher in my house, you know. So I think it doesn't, I think cosmopolitanism doesn't mean that we should privilege people on the other side of the world or in distant spaces from us above those who are closest to us. It doesn't mean we need to get rid of our existing relationships or devalue them. I don't think it's saying that we should have impartiality toward every person in the world. That's obviously it's not possible. You can't treat 8 billion people all the same. And it's not desirable either. Humans are built to live in close relationships with certain people, not with 8 billion people. So I think that Stoic cosmopolitanism does not mean, does not negate our close relationships, even though it does say hey, you, you don't think that you are more important than other people. You don't think mm -hmm. that your family deserves special privileges. You don't think that you're better than anybody just because you're you. It means that you believe everybody is equal and is kin and deserves dignity and respect and to be treated well. But that doesn't mean that you're going to go empty, you know, empty their dishwasher, take out their trash, take their dog on a walk when they're on vacation, right? So we maintain our close relationships while recognizing, you know, that other people are just as valuable as our close friends. So to me, this is a wonderful message from Chris Gill's new book. Of course, there are, it's just one of many, but that to me stood out because I haven't really seen anybody else talking about that. Excellent. Yeah, you can check out your review on Stoicism for Humans, or I should say, check out your review posts, since you do a post for each chapter on Stoicism for Humans. Is there anything else you wanted to add? Oh, it's been a really far-ranging conversation. I've, I'm glad I could share some of my thoughts on just living as a Stoic, because I think, you know, I've been practicing Stoicism for six or seven years now, and I've thought a lot about, okay, as a Stoic, you know, what do I wear? What should be my approach to getting dressed in the morning? What should be my approach to sustainability? What should be my approach to parenting? Everything. So this has been a great conversation to kind of bring some of those disparate thoughts together. So I've really enjoyed this. I might just add 
I am embarking on a different kind of project in the future, which is stoic fiction. So I, I haven't really seen many other people doing this, but I'll just put it out there that I'm starting to work on a stoic novel to incorporate some, some of these philosophical ideas, which can be kind of hard to digest, you know, in their regular form, maybe sweeten it a little bit with some action and mystery and things like that. So if anybody else is interested in stoic fiction, I'd love to hear from you and find out more about what you're doing as well. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for coming on again. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Stoic Conversations. Please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and share it with a friend. And if you'd like to get two meditations from me on Stoic theory and practice a week, just two short emails on whatever I've been thinking about, as well as some of the best resources we found for practicing Stoicism, check out stoaletcher.com. It's completely free. You can sign up for it and then unsubscribe at any time as you wish. If you want to dive deeper still, search Stoa in the App Store or Play Store for a complete app with routines, meditations, and lessons designed to help people become more stoic. And I'd also like to thank Michael Levy for graciously letting us use his music. You can find more of his work at ancientliar.com. And finally, please get in touch with us. Send a message to stoa at stoameditation.com if you ever have any feedback, questions, or recommendations. Until next time.